Thank you for listening and welcome to a new episode of this podcast, bringing you medical information and nice guidance from a primary care perspective. My name is Fernando Florido and I am a GP in the United Kingdom. Now imagine that we have Mr. Johnson, who is 78 and has type 2 diabetes. His diabetic control is reasonable on metformin 500mg PD with an HbA1c of 7.1% or 54mmol per mole. But he has just developed stable angina. How should his diabetic treatment change? We have covered the 2022 NICE Diabetes Management update in previous episodes. But perhaps we need a quick reminder? And this is what we're going to do today because in this episode I am going to go through the flowcharts produced by NICE in respect of the blood glucose management in type 2 diabetes. The full guideline has 59 pages in the PDF format and NICE has produced a 5-page summary on the blood glucose management. This video is going to focus on the two flowcharts that will advise how to choose first-line medicines and how to choose medicines for further treatment. I will put in the description below a link to download the full NICE guideline as well as the five-page summary. There's a YouTube version of this episode and other NICE guidance on the NICE GP YouTube channel and a link to access it can be found in the podcast description. Because of the visual nature of the flowchart, I would highly recommend watching the YouTube video if you can. Although describing visual aids as an audio file can be challenging, I hope that you find the content clear and informative. Now the first flowchart that we're going to look at is the one about how to choose first-line medicines. It is only one page and there is a combination of arrows that will guide us through the treatment pathways and a number of boxes with further information and clarification on the treatment described. Right at the top of the chart, we find a box that tells us about rescue therapy and it reminds us that for patients with symptomatic hyperglycemia, we will consider insulin or a sulfonylurea and then review the treatment when the blood glucose control has been achieved. The next step is to assess the HbA1c, the cardiovascular risk and kidney function. Obviously, as you know, to calculate the cardiovascular risk with, for example, the QRISC2 tool, we will need to know the patient's age, sex, smoking status, blood pressure and the total cholesterol HDL ratio. Now, having checked the renal function, before starting to follow the pathways, there's a little box on the left telling us that for information on using SGLT2 inhibitors for people with type 2 diabetes and CKD, there is a specific guidance that is not on this flowchart and we will have to refer to the CKD section of the diabetic guideline. So, after we have done our initial assessment with the HbA1c, cardiovascular risk and kidney function, the flowchart divides into three categories. One, it could be that the patient is not at high risk of cardiovascular disease. Two, that the patient has chronic heart failure or established atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. Or three, that the patient has a high risk of cardiovascular disease, which is defined as a Q-risk 2 
of 10% or higher over 10 years or an elevated lifetime risk. Now, the first pathway would be when the patient is not at high risk of cardiovascular disease. And for these patients, we will offer metformin or if there are gastrointestinal side effects, we will give metformin's low release. Now, if metformin is contraindicated, we will consider one of the other anti-diabetic agents, that is either a DPP-4 inhibitor, bioglitazone, or a sulfonylurea, although it does also tell us that SGLT2 inhibitors can also be given as monotherapy for some patients. Basically, NICE recommends an SGLT2 inhibitor as monotherapy in people who can't take metformin and for whom the diabetic control is poor, only if a DPP-4 inhibitor would otherwise be prescribed and a sulfonylurea or bioglitazone is not appropriate. So it's fairly restrictive. We also see a small note saying that using erticlifosin to reduce cardiovascular risk when blood glucose is well controlled was an off-label use. So, if there's no cardiovascular risk, we give metformin first, and if contraindicated, one of the other agents, sulfonylurea, pioglitazone, DPPG4 inhibitors, or an SGLT2 inhibitor, although the latter with a few restrictions. Now, the second pathway would be when the patient has got chronic failure or established atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. And the flowchart tells us in a box what they actually mean by established atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. And this is fairly intuitive. It includes CHD, acute coronary syndrome, previous AMI, stable angina, prior coronary or other revascularization, cerebrovascular disease, which includes both ischemic stroke and TIAs, and finally, peripheral arterial disease. So for those patients, we will do very similar. We will start with metformin, or if there are gastrointestinal side effects, we will give metformin slow release. And then as soon as metformin tolerability is confirmed, we will offer an SGLT2 inhibitor with proven cardiovascular benefit. And this is because SGLT2 inhibitors have now been found to reduce cardiovascular events. However, if metformin is contraindicated, then we will give an SGLT2 inhibitor alone. So this is fairly straightforward. Finally, the third option after the initial assessment is when the patient hasn't got cardiovascular disease, but is at high risk of it. In this case, the flowchart is basically fairly similar. We will give metformin, or if there are side effects with metformin, we will give metformin slow release. And then, as soon as metformin tolerability is confirmed, we will consider an SGLT2 inhibitor with proven cardiovascular benefit. Also, if metformin is contraindicated, we will consider an SGLT2 inhibitor alone. So you may ask, what's the difference between the last two groups, having cardiovascular disease and being at high risk of cardiovascular disease? And the difference is basically that if the patient has got cardiovascular disease or heart failure, we will definitely offer an SGLT2 inhibitor. Whereas if a patient is only at high risk of cardiovascular disease, 
we will consider it. But in practice you'll probably find that the pathways are exactly the same because you're going to consider it seriously and you're likely to be giving it unless there is a contraindication or other major consideration. In the middle of the flowchart there's also a little box that reminds us that we always have to start with metformin alone to assess tolerability before adding an SGLT2 inhibitor. So metformin is always the start. Right, so this is really the flowchart on how to choose first-line medicines. After this, if the person's HbA1c is not controlled below the target, or a person develops cardiovascular disease or a high risk of cardiovascular disease, then we will move to the second flowchart, which is the one about treatment options if further interventions are needed which is the one about treatment options if further interventions are needed. So here we go. The second flowchart, which is also one page, is on how to choose medicines for further treatment. Here, at the beginning, there's another box telling us again about the rescue therapy and using insulin or a sulfonylurea for symptomatic hyperglycemia until the levels are controlled. Now, if further treatment options are needed, it will be because either at any point the HbA1c is not well controlled, or at any point the cardiovascular risk or cardiovascular status change. Right, we're going to start with the cardiovascular risk or cardiovascular status change. And we've got two options. The first one is that the person has or develops chronic heart failure or established atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. And the second one is that the person develops a high risk of cardiovascular disease. If the person has or develops chronic heart failure or established atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, we will basically switch or add treatments to make sure that we offer an SGLT2 inhibitor if this is not already prescribed. So if the person develops the condition, we will either add an SGLT2 inhibitor if the HbA1c could do with lowering further, or if the HbA1c is fairly low and we don't want to lower it anymore, then we will switch one of the existing drugs for an SGLT2 inhibitor. On the other hand, if the person has or develops a high risk of cardiovascular disease, then we will consider an SGLT2 inhibitor when switching or adding drugs. So like before in the previous flowchart, giving an SGLT2 inhibitor is more imperative when the person has developed cardiovascular disease, whereas if the person is just at high risk, we will only consider it but yet again, in practice, it may not make much difference. Now, if at any point the HbA1c is not well controlled, there is a box that tells us that we will switch or add treatments from different drug classes up to triple therapy or dual therapy if metformin is contraindicated. So basically, we will consider any combination to dual or triple therapy of the anti-diabetic agents that is either a DPP-4 inhibitor, bioglitazone, or a sulfonylurea, although it also tells us that SGLT2 inhibitors may also be an option, 
both in dual therapy or triple therapy. Now you may ask, when should we start insulin? Well, at the bottom left corner, we find a box that tells us that when dual therapy is not enough to control the HbA1c, we can consider insulin-based therapy with or without other drugs. And there is additional guidance on how to use insulin with SGLT2 inhibitors. So basically, if a patient goes up to dual therapy and is not well controlled, you may consider either triple therapy if the patient is on metformin or just consider insulin as the next step. And finally, what is happening with GLP-1 mimetics? Well, this is where NICE has been quite restrictive in their approach because it tells us that if triple therapy with metformin and two other oral drugs is not enough, we will consider triple therapy by switching one drug for a GLP-1 mimetic, but only for people who have a BMI of 35 or higher and specific psychological or other medical problems associated with obesity. Although it does say that you can adjust the BMI to lower for people from black, Asian and other minority ethnic groups because these groups are at higher risk of cardiovascular disease and GLP mimetics have also been shown to reduce cardiovascular events. Or we can also give it to patients who have a BMI lower than 35 and for whom insulin therapy would have a significant occupational implication or weight loss would benefit other significant obesity-related comorbidities. Right, so this is it. We have finished our second flowchart and therefore we have come to the end of this episode. I hope that you have found it useful. There is also a YouTube version in the NICE GP YouTube channel and I will leave a link in the podcast description. Thank you for listening and I hope that you will join me in the next one. Goodbye.